This week's podcast episode number 93 is sponsored by Keysight Technologies. Keysight's a leading technology company that helps enterprises, service providers, and governments accelerate innovation to connect and secure the world. Keysight solutions optimize networks and bring electronic products to market faster and at lower cost with offerings from design simulation to prototype validation to manufacturing test to optimization in networks and cloud environments. Check them out at keysight.com. Hello and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, the Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast, the RSA Security Conference wrapped up in San Francisco last week. We invited Steve McGregory, the Senior Director of Application and Threat Intelligence at Ixia, a division of Keysight, to come in and talk about what was happening at the show and to weigh in on one of the big trends last week, machine learning. But first, in a little more than a month, the EU's general data Privacy Regulation, or GDPR, will take effect. Among other big changes, GDPR is likely to give a much higher profile to the Chief Privacy Officer, a relatively obscure title up to now that is poised to become much more common. To understand a bit more about the work of Chief Privacy Officers and about the likely impact of GDPR on the way companies manage data, we met up with Michelle Dennity, the Chief Privacy Officer at Cisco Systems on the sidelines of the RSA conference. In a wide-ranging interview, Michelle talked about how the EU regulations are going to change business culture. I started by asking Michelle what's on her to-do list and how she's getting ready for GDPR. Michelle Dennity. I am Cisco's Vice President and Chief Privacy Officer. Thanks so much for coming on the Security Ledger Podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you. Where to start? There's so much to talk about. Since we started talking about GDPR, that's one of the topics you're going to be talking about. And obviously, you're a CPO, which five years ago was kind of an obscure title that people probably asked you about. And now... Yes is huge. Now people are like, oh my gosh, do we, we need, need one? We need one of you. Yeah, come like, on. Yeah, us. you do. Yes. <laughs> there's, a, there's certainly a lot of conversation going on about GDPR. The deadline for compliance is coming up in a little more than a month. So what's on your to-do list and what's top of mind for you vis-a-vis GDPR compliance? Are you mostly focused on making sure Cisco corporate is GDPR compliant or are you mostly in evangelist mode and talking to Cisco customers? So it's a blend. So I don't own the compliance compliance. I'm not in the legal department. I report into the trust office under the COO. So we're operational. Part of my uh, task is internal to make sure that our compliance people are following the strategy and we're all consistent and that kind of stuff, training and evangelizing. A lot of the other stuff, and I was going to say it's more fun, but that's not really true. It is fun to work internally, too, with some of the innovators and the engineers, but I work a lot with customers and governments to talk about what is now, what should be later. And, you know, here we are in in the Aprils, and we've got about a month left. So the only thing you should be planning for GDPR readiness is the party. (laughs) Like, now is not the time to get started. Invites out. (laughs) But that said, you know, even if you haven't, don't stick your head in the sand because the deadline is not a deadline. May 25 is when the enforcement of a law that was promulgated two years ago begins. 
and the operative word is begin. It's the beginning of a new era where data is looked at with the same level of scrutiny and care and risk as antitrust violations, food safety issues, all of the things that we want as a global society. Mm. And so that's my perspective is, yeah, we're gonna have a party on the 26th and say, yes, we did the things that we committed we were gonna do to follow what we thought was GDPR readiness. Immediately as we start to see enforcement cases coming out, there'll be mushiness, things will shift, things will jive, and we'll have to sort out from there. Really, what what do we learn over this last two years of readiness? Right. Where do you think the, the gaps are going to be between what companies might consider to be compliant and what regulators consider to be compliant? Oh yeah, <laughs> that, that is the money question, right? Um, I think it's going to be, as per usual with something this big and important, the staffs of regulators haven't ballooned to match the fines that are available. So I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a lot of strategic enforcement of this law. You probably will see uh, scrutiny of documentation. Did you do what you said you were going to do? Similar to when the Federal Trade Commission in early 2000 really started going after fair practices under the law. Mm -hmm. Did you say that you had a notice and you didn't? Mm -hmm. That's an easy, low-hanging fruit for them to go after. Did you really do privacy by design and have you really figured out what a right to forgotten even means in a society that's never had one? Mm -hmm. I don't think that's May 26. Mm -hmm. So looking at the what are you doing? Are you looking at your privacy policy as your business plan? This is where I'm telling my customers and my employees, what are my ethics? What's my brand for privacy? What can you expect from me? Am I being transparent enough so that they understand and they're having a dialogue with me? Mm -hmm. Do I need to step that up? Mm -hmm. Do I have documented processes so that I'm going from a run as fast as you can to get GDPR ready to is there something repeatable or even better yet, are there efficiencies to be gained in digitizing some of this stuff and making it into tools so that you have metrics that come out of it, you know there are certain things you just do as a routine basis. Mm -hmm. And that's I think the interesting part of this is really looking at it as right now everything is sort of a handcrafted sculpture mm -hmm. and we need to move towards what is dual book accounting for data? So one of the requirements is that companies have some kind of a designated privacy officer, mm -hmm. sometimes one for each country that they are doing business in. And What would you recommend for companies that are saying, well, we're a small company and we can't hire somebody just to be a privacy officer? We right. That kind of First of all, you should. <laughs> <laughs> and they should all get really big raises and a shoe budget. Big packages, yes. Yeah. Uh, no, I think I think the the interesting thing, and I think you put your finger on it, which is it's it's not a legal requirement in every jurisdiction in which GDPR, and we haven't even gotten to the rest of the world. There actually mm -hmm. isn't a world outside of Europe. Mm -hmm. This is alarming to many people. Yeah, right. right, <laughs> like, right. It's not the only place. We are not Christopher Columbus. So we need to figure out, does it apply to you as an organization? The smaller you are, actually, probably the more straightforward your business plan should be. So if I am a business of uh, dry cleaning people's clothing, and I know that I want them to pay me, and I may or may not decide to have them pay me using credit card or Square or some other technology, Right there, you have a pile of critical personal data that is germane to actually keeping the lights on in your business. Start there. Mm -hmm. Someone knows mm -hmm. that they're paying a certain amount of money for a certain service. Do you know what the data footprint is there? 
Have you asked that question? Hmm. Have you looked at what you're buying if you're buying a cloud service? So it really is a nuanced change in everyone's business responsibility. I think it was a lot to ask people before there was dual book accounting, you know, 100, just just a little over 100 years ago when it was really being used as a business investment tool. You wouldn't think that every single person knew what profit and loss was, what investment versus just cash out spending was. We're, we're starting down the road where every individual will understand that when you are being observed, when you're collecting, collecting observations, you are transacting in data. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to slowly teach every employee what their data budget is and how they protect it. That kind of dovetails with one of the other talks that you're that you're uh, or taking part in at RSA, which is really about the risk that goes along with hoarding data. Or so this is somewhat contrary to the popular wisdom in Silicon Valley over the last 20 years, right? Yes. Which has been the more data you have, the wealthier you are as a company. Um, but you're obviously promoting the opposite idea, which is while that data has value, there's also a lot of risk that comes with it. What do you do with that? What is your advice to companies who might be looking at WhatsApp or Facebook or Google yep. and saying that there lies the path to riches? Yeah, so I, I oh gosh, so much to unpack there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was a long question. <laughs> no, but it's a very rich one for, for a lot of different reasons. So, you know, let's let's start with the big data aggregators and data-based businesses, whether they're social, whether they are connecting you to information, um, the the old timey wisdom is more is more. Mm-hmm. Um, get as much quote unquote insight as possible. We'll run analytics against it. Data is similar to any other asset. The more curated the data is, the more insightful it will be about a targeted personal relationship. The better curated for the right purpose. Mm. So when you walk into the doctor, in your mind you instinctively think, I want them to know everything about me. Well, you really don't. It would take years for them to just decide that you have a strep throat and you need a little penicillin. Mm -hmm. If you gave them every single bit and, and data that's collectible about your human anatomy right now. So we have to think about data as, are you hoarding it just to hoard it because you have no business plan? That's never been a good business profit uh, model even when it was gold because that gold gets stolen or it gets lost or whatever there's still pirate gold out there hidden somewhere in them their hills Mm. it didn't make anyone anything but dirty it's the same thing with data you know you have to really think about data in a new way of you know is it fresh enough is it on the shelf too long is it still relevant? Are you still collecting stuff about people who've retired? They're definitely not going to sign a PO for you for your tech, you know, right. your tech tools. Right. You know, I used to live in New York, and one of my favorite things to do, and I'll, I'll admit this on air, I used to be an IP lawyer. Yes. Um, I, I used saw that. to buy um, fake purses. Mm-hmm. Did it? Mm-hmm. You're I think the alone. statute of limitations is over. Yeah. I, one of my favorite bags was a Prado. <laughs> um, <laughs> Gotta look closely at that. Yeah, even if it fell off the truck, which is what people would claim, it isn't the same thing as walking in and buying a luxury item and having the experience of having the nice little soft moleskin bag around it and the whole, like, you know, Hervé Bernard brown and white bag. Yes. 
so maybe it's the same object and maybe that shallow of us as humans but think about just something that uh, trivial as what does a brand really mean if you're just wearing it as a fake icon it can be prado yeah and that can kind of be your shtick right if you're really looking for quality and you're really looking to not feel like you've been duped you want to have some sort of provenance. You want right. to have an, a data experience. Well, and buying a knockoff anything does get you thinking about that value in a really interesting way. Like, exactly. I've got this purse. It looks exactly like a Prada purse, but I know it's not. And somehow that makes it less. But of course, it's, you know, to my looking, you know, it's the same object. Yeah. So, but to people who care about that sort yes. of thing, they know it's last season. They know it's last. Yeah. No. And right. they know it's right. Prada. Right. There is a difference. Right. There's <laughs> definitely a difference. Yeah. And that's and I think that's right. If at the superficial level, if you don't really care about the result, yeah. then the ingredients are what they are. Yes. But we are talking about things with GDPR and some of these other regulations that are saying, wait a minute, if you are making decisions about what people learn as news, what people get as credit vehicles, mm-hmm. how they're able to live or vote or all these other really fundamental activities that we do as humans, you have to curate. You have to have a provenance. You have to know that it's that quality because it may look the same, but it's not the same. The other thing you're talking about at RSA this week, which I, I think is a really timely and fascinating topic, is, is uh, data integrity. And this is really tricky topic to talk about because it's a very difficult one to pin down. Yes. Um, but so talk, a l- I mean, maybe just to start off, just explain a little bit what, what you mean and what we're talking about when we talk about data integrity and threats to data integrity. Um, and um, and we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah. So it, it, I'm glad you asked that question because I'm at a security conference and integrity is kind of no molestar, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yes. but to a privacy person and a yeah. data strategy person, integrity is certainly no one else has touched it or fooled with it mm-hmm. and it's been authenticated. To me, that's like making sure you have the right materials around a liquid substance, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then for me, the curation and integrity of, of privacy and, and its relationship with security is once you've built the right sort of fabric or piping around it, I really look at the flow and the qualities of what's going through those pipes. So integrity for me is, does it fit my business plan? Is this the right kind of information? Is it, does it have the right integrity in that it's fresh enough? Is this data current enough? Does it still matter in the same way? So it really is the metadata about the data mm. has to be there and, and measurable mm-hmm. because if it is what it what it says it is, but I can't prove it, I'm stuck with a fake Prada bag. I don't think you need to break into companies anymore. Right. I don't even think you need to break into nations. Right. You need to say that their meat and milk supply has gone off, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you have caused economic ham- havoc right. and harm. Right. You need to suggest that their elections aren't full of integrity. That's right. And you have undermined a, de- a democratic system. Right. So that's right. So we hear a lot about that now in the context of election security, right? Yep. So is the vote secure? Can we mess with voter rolls to create chaos on election day? I mean, people um, are go- suggesting going back to paper. Yes. Because we don't have the kind well, of integrity. states are going back to paper. Yeah. yeah. The paper ballot. Here um, come the chads. Here They're come back. the chads. <laughs> well, we have optical scan, right? So it's, yep. you don't need a chad. And, and of course, we, we talked about it with Stuxnet, right? Yes. So 
there was a that was one of the things that Stuxnet did was to, to really misreport the performance of the of the centrifuges. Exactly. Um, so and imagine if we did that with our books when we closed our books. That's right. That's right. Or, or with a company that's manufacturing a product, right? Exactly. That, you know, the, the, some critical part. So I guess the question for you is: Is this hypothetical, or do we think that these are attacks that are? You know, maybe actually out there already, um, but very difficult to, as I said, pin down, identify, uh, call out as, aha, this is an incident. I think they're out there and there are sort of dark world POCs going on all the time around us. Right, right. I think they would be intellectually and executionally expensive attacks um, right now compared to the amount of exploits that you can get done on the cheap, if you will, intellectually, time-wise, and, and who needs to know if you're doing something in the dark. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, I think that, and this is a big part of why I'm excited to work internally uh, in a network company, we're racing toward that future to say, what does your architecture need to look like to prove data flow integrity without disrupting and, and necessarily disrupting even looking, inspecting packets? So can you have encryption, for example, as just one of many methodologies to wrap a protective wrapper around? Once you've taken off that seal and looked at to see if there's malware inside, have you disrupted the integrity of the packet? Well, that's where you start to see our ETA technologies coming out. Does the bulge in the network say there might be reason, sort of corporate due cause, if you mm-hmm. would, mm-hmm. To, to crack open and look and, and inspect for evil deeds? Mm-hmm. That's kind of the countermeasure to some of these other informational attacks is we have to be really thinking creatively about what does the data economy really mean what does the new economy look like once we use a tool like encryption? We used to talk about castles and moats. Mm-hmm. And then we started talking about a city model of protection. That's more schneiery than mm-hmm. diffie like mm-hmm. But between that thinking, and that thinking goes back to the 1960s, and Grace Hopper's statement that information is more valuable than the hardware. Mm-hmm. We're only now in 2018 starting to design for that reality that there's no silver bullet out there. We have to figure out, can the data itself be made situationally aware? That's a whole different way of looking at this. Mm. And I think that's where the exciting challenge is. So I know first of all, I love that you list on your LinkedIn profile that you're, that you're CEO of mom, <laughs> <laughs> CEO of little people turning into big people. Yes. That's so Sometimes great. I'm not very good. I got a bad review <laughs> this morning, not going to lie. So, so definitely some positive changes this year, and I think in the industry yeah. in general. So I mean, there was some kerfuffling before about the, about the, the lineup, lineup got done, yes. yeah. but yeah. it's, it, I mean, they filled, they filled it up with some really, really strong uh, people in tech that... What's, the, big, what's the big fix and the permanent fix to, oh, to the diversity? Not only gender diversity, but also... Everything diversity. Yeah, just non-white guys. Non-white men. <laughs> so I was actually down in another country a couple weeks ago, and I looked up at the audience. Like, first of all, we're going to have to start issuing hats because we're all getting so old <laughs> that not only are they whiteheads, but they're bald heads. <laughs> and I'm like, it literally was like a field of 300 bald heads. Yeah. But I asked them, I said, you know what? I want everyone in this audience to raise their hand if they understand women. Mm -hmm. And one did, and I was like, okay, that one's a liar. (laughs) Or he's a savant. The point of diversity is not having girls, more girls. Um, The point is 
if you want to understand the next adversary, you got to understand teenage girls. Right. They right. think very differently from you and I. Yes. They think very differently from their male colleagues. Yeah. I need to have the male perspective because I don't have that. I, the old style of female leadership was you had to practice pretending to be what you thought aggressive male was. Right, right, right. And so you get these super nasty prototype people yes. that had nothing to do with how I wanted to be sure. as a human. Right, right. Like, just please act like how 99% of men aren't. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. Because that's the other part of the diversity is you need good men thinking creatively, you need good women thinking creatively, and you need all sorts of different ethnic backgrounds because the attackers are global, the, the fixers have to be global too. Michelle Dennity of Cisco, thank you so much for coming on the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you. This is so fun. It was great. You're listening to the Security Ledger podcast. This week's podcast is brought to you by Keysight Technologies. Keysight's a leading technology company that helps enterprises, service providers, and governments accelerate innovation to connect and secure the world. Check them out at keysight.com. Up next, the RSA Security Conference took place last week in San Francisco. It's the information security industry's biggest conference and always a pretty reliable bellwether for what's hot and happening in cybersecurity. But while cyber is a word that's on the tip of everybody's tongue right now, the message out of the RSA conference was more mixed, reflecting an industry caught amid big changes in how companies and individuals use technology. With RSA in the books, we invited Steve McGregory, the Senior Director of Application and Threat Intelligence at Ixia, into the Security Ledger Studios to talk about the show and weigh in on one of the big trends this year, machine learning. Steve and I talk about how an absence of quality data may be limiting the usefulness of machine learning as an aid to security incident response. Yeah, Steve McGregory. Senior Director, Application and Threat Intelligence Research Center. Ixia works in test and measurement of network layer two through seven and wired or wireless networks. And we provide cybersecurity tests. Uh, we provide uh, measurement of your of your network and as well as your cybersecurity. And we also have a network visibility organization along with security where we provide companies with uh, network visibility products that help them gain control and power over this these these networks that have grown from on-premise to cloud private public cloud and uh, the complexity has got, just gotten out of hand so that's what we do we have an extraordinary position in the world where we get to see because uh, we work with all the networking um, vendors and we we get uh, we're in a position of seeing the problems as they're happening in the industry, we take that and we identify where we can help. And that's where uh, network visibility and our security products and our test products are all uh, being applied. This is the last day of the RSA Security Conference out in San Francisco. I thought I'd ask you, Steve, how was the week for you and what impressions did you walk away from the Moscone with besides when are they ever going to finish this facelift that they're giving it? (laughs) Yes, which is really needed. I think uh, I, my first impression was that it seemed like the show uh, doubled in, in number of attendees. It was, you know, hard to walk around the expo. It was uh, uh, long lines for registration, it, all everything, and all the construction probably didn't help that. But, uh, you know, in general, the week for me is invigorating. It's always something I find uh, 
when I get to go to RSA or, or some of the other shows and network with people that I talk with on Twitter or, you know, through email. So I really uh, benefit from that, the FaceTime. I would also say that the show and the security industry is a bit murky in that there's no real true theme. You know, if you look back a few years ago, threat intelligence was a theme. You know, people, it became like a big thing. And, you know, um, two years ago, I guess it was uh, endpoint, right? Everything was endpoint. And this year, uh, much like last year, and, and even more so, was a a group of, of kind of some new startups, not a lot of new startups, but small companies doing kind of like your, you know, specific type functionality and then your bigger security vendors who say they can do everything. Yeah, in a, in my my kind of census of, of it is that it really seems like, you know, cybersecurity has grown. There's a ton more people there at RSA and the industry itself is in a transitioning phase where, you know, I think we're 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 kind of pointing away from just perimeter security and and now that you have the cloud and you have all these other internet of things and you've got all this stuff and you try to make sense of it and it's really difficult and I'm hoping that the industry can start to, to clear up some of that in, in the next year or two. I mean, I think murky is a good word for it and it, it's kind of ironic in a way because, of course, information security or cybersecurity have really almost moved to the center of our culture. I mean, they're, they're really part of everyday conversations in ways that they weren't five or ten years ago. Yes, much more so, yes. But RSA, which is, of course, the big industry show, that's made it actually harder to see where the boundaries of the of the field are and or the industry are and, and where they leave off. And, um, and I totally agree with you. It, it's it's yeah. cyber's kind of come to be everything. But in becoming everything, it also is nothing. You know, it's 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 lost a real clear message. Yeah, I think we've kind of made it more difficult for people to know what they really need. But in the industry uh, ourselves, we're like an echo chamber, and and one of the other challenges I see is for us to to get to some of the industries uh, like IoT and and automotive that are coming out with new connected devices that maybe haven't started with security because we're just opening up more doors, right? So, mm-hmm. okay, so you weren't just an attendee at RSA; you were also a co-presenter of a session on Tuesday that talked about network visibility technology along with our AI, artificial intelligence. Network visibility and AI, you're our only hope. I Props for the uh, Star Wars reference there. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I love Star Wars for one thing, but uh, it also, it's uh, the new hope came out and then I was like, okay, it's Star Wars. And then I, we were, Chris and I said, well, wh- how do we turn analysts into Jedis instead of guys falling asleep at their desk because they can't keep up with everything, right? And that's... that's <laughs> Get Yoda to train them, man. He wouldn't put up with Yeah, that exactly. But, you know, so it's our message was let computers compute and analysts be Jedis, right? So have the computers narrow down using artificial m- machine learning techniques mm-hmm. and algorithms and things that help the computer learn that this, it's seen this something like this before. So it's high probability that this is also uh, malicious and and then, you know, use and correlate with more of your uh, different models. And then you start to derive that, hey, this is either OK or, yeah, we're much more certain this is bad. And, and raise that to the analyst attention instead of the analyst trying to 
to do all that work through logs and all these correlation things. The main problems we see in this industry and what we're dealing with is that we have all these disparate technologies. We always know that, right? So you got to get multiple tools. You know, so how can you use something like machine learning, or uh, which relies on uh, empirical kind of evidence. The the problem with machine learning is trying to make decisions off incomplete data sets. You have to have uh, data that comes throughout your network. And, and that's the only way that you're going to get really good machine learning uh, decisions. And so that, that our session was meant to help everyone understand that we, we, we see what you're dealing with. You know, uh, we use the Equifax as an example type uh, topic because we had some insight on that. We, there's also um, plenty of reports about what happened there. And, um, and then we use some examples from that on how machine learning could have been used to identify the compromise you know, way earlier. Let's talk about that. How could machine learning have helped at Equifax, uh, given what we know about the specifics of that attack? So, yeah, at, at Equifax, they have spent, they spend a lot of money every year on, on security and they have um, really good uh, people, have really good products, right? And the problem is the data showed that they would get two 0.5 billion logs per day. And the ability to process that, even if you have, if you spend like $80 million a year with people, is is just impossible from the, you know, disparate tools. It's easy to miss things. So what happened was uh, someone was able to use the Apache uh, vulnerability that was on one of the websites and get in, and they were able to spend 78 days inside the network without anyone being aware. Now, what they did in that 78-day period, and by the way, this is the lateral movement uh, phase, and a key point I'd like to say is that hackers have automated the compromise capability, the reconnaissance capability. They can, once they uh, get into your network, that part is not completely automated. It takes them a good bit of time. So, to me, this is the perfect place. We've got to you know, beat the breach. We, a breach is when they take your goods, right? The compromise is when they get in. But the time they spend to learn your network is a lot of time. And so what they started doing is they started doing things using, you know, administrative tools to scan the network. And uh, they would open up ports to known uh, CNC servers that were out. You know, they had a firewall blocking them, but they were from the inside out going to be able to open up connections to known CNC servers. When they're doing these operations, they're doing the known methods of, of an administrator. This is this uh, what we would call unsupervised learning, which takes about 7 to 14 days. But you put it in your network, and over time, it starts to identify your administrators and how they operate, when they operate. And you start to use this metadata as part of your data set, and you cluster them together. And then what would happen as soon as this uh, Equifax uh, compromise occurred, behaviors of administrators started happening that didn't fit into the unsupervised cluster that had been built. So it would have popped up and highlighted on the screen that this was occurring. And it was one of the first things that they did. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we see that pattern such as it is in a lot of incidents. I know the Anthem breach, uh, at least again, what we learned about that after the fact, um, that that would have been the case there. And the Sony Pictures Entertainment as well, where they had yep. access to these networks for a while, had taken over domain admin or administrator credentials and were using that to 
you know, expand their hold and and um, and move laterally within the network. I think after the pack, everyone's like, oh, my God, how could they be so dumb? They were on their network for however long, you know, months or days or weeks. But I think people misunderstand how much how much data is generated by the various monitoring and security tools that, that companies have deployed and and how difficult it is just as a as a human to to make sense of that, to pick the needle out of the haystack, so to speak. Yeah. It is. It, it really is because the tools they were using are the same tools as the administrator uses. But it was the um, right. the fact that they were so, occurring from systems that normally didn't do administrative tools. That's, you know? right. so, that's right. And, and that's something that a machine can pick up on that's been trained properly. It's very quickly. And, and so that new battlefront of the lateral movement, that's where we win the battles it's, it's, you know, you can put up IPS's perimeter devices. It slows down attackers where we know they get through because we see the breaches happening. So you, st- you have to layer in all that perimeter support as much as you can afford. But then you have to also look internally, monitor for this type of activity. Because right now, if we can stop them there, you stop them before they exfiltrate all your, your data, right? And you, you don't lose anything. But right now, we're, we're not doing that. We're not achieving that. And that's what we're trying to help everyone do. Steve McGregory, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. All right, Paul Roberts, I appreciate it. I very much enjoyed talking with you. And thanks once again to Keysight Technologies for sponsoring this week's Security Ledger podcast. Keysight's a leading technology company that helps enterprises, service providers, and governments accelerate innovation to connect and secure the world. Check them out at keysight.com dot com.